So we started the uh, new sermon series that uh, we're going to be in for a while now together, uh, What Revelation Reveals. Started that last week, and uh, last week was definitely an introductory message uh, to really just set the foundation, set the stage for everything else that we're going to be talking about as we go forward in the series. And the way John started out writing the revelation that he received from the Lord Jesus was in that way. It was very much an introduction to everything else that was going to come. Uh, It was a prologue. It was kind of the uh, the cover page, if you will, for everything else that's going to follow. And he really uh, just laid out where he got this revelation from. Uh, it was not something he came up with or he designed or, or he made up. Uh, it was a revelation that he received from none other than the Lord Jesus himself, which God the Father gave him as a gift. So the Father gives this incredible revelation, this singular revelation that has many parts to it. He gave that to Jesus. Then Jesus, through an angel, sent it to John so that he could communicate it and express it and reveal it. And so John lets everybody know, this is where this is coming from. It's not from me. It's from God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where I got all this. And he gives just some some introduction. Uh, He gives praise to the Lord Jesus. We talked about that, about his, his glory and his sovereignty. And then he transitions to starting uh, of the revealing itself of this awesome revelation. Gets into the details and the specifics. So that's where we're going to be today. Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20 is going to be our main text. So I hope you have a copy of God's Word with you, uh, or you have it you know, on your phone or tablet or some device like that, and you can follow along as we go through this together. So Revelation 1, 9 through 20, and starting at verse 9, let's just jump into it together. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, that could also be persecution or trials, in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos was not just some uh, getaway for the Apostle John. It wasn't a, a paradise, uh, you know, uh, tropical reprieve from the, the troubles and burden of his pastoral work or uh, uh, as being an apostle. That's not what this was at all. Patmos was like Alcatraz for the Roman world. It's very much like it, how it was. Um, the Roman Empire, whenever they had political prisoners or criminals, they would send these worst of the worst to this island that was called Patmos, and it was actually a chain of islands, but it was a penal colony. It was, it was a place where they would be under guard and they would work um, long hours through the day, through the night in uh, mining. It was, it was a salt mine area. And so hard work, it was built on, on nothing but, but rock. It was just remote. It was barren. There were no amenities on this island. It was just this rock island in the Aegean. And criminals would go there, and they would be given forced labor 
uh, as a result of, of whatever crime they were guilty of or Rome said they were guilty of. And so uh, AD 95, the emperor Domitian, he didn't like Christians at all. And so he expelled all who named the name of Christ out of the empire, and some he targeted for even more severe persecution, and that involves the apostle John. He didn't kill him. Uh, he, he instead sentenced him to Patmos for this, this life of uh, absolute isolation, desolation, hard labor. That was what Domitian did for John because of, as John said, because of the word of God that John proclaimed as a messenger of the gospel and as a pastor because of the testimony of Jesus that John did not recant from. So that's what John means when he says, I was on the island called Patmos. He was in exile. He was under house arrest, and if you could call it a house, most of the uh, lodging at the time would have been, I mean, nothing we would call a house or a home. I mean, it would have been a shack at best where they lodged when they had a few precious moments of reprieve from all their labor. That's where he was day in, day out, um, and yet he, he served faithfully. It didn't shake his, his faith. It didn't shake his ministry. Uh, it didn't shake his calling. But Patmos, um, at the time, like I said, it was, it was barren. It was rocky. Uh, it was remote. It looks nothing like it did today. Uh, that's what Patmos looks like. That's a place you might like to go, right? See that nice little cruise ship there off the, off the shore? Um, not too bad. Not too shabby, right? And now... Uh, Greece has made Patmos exactly that, this, this wonderful tropical paradise and this getaway. But before it looked like this, this is kind of maybe an idea of what it would have looked like in John's day. I mean, it's rocky and empty and barren, and that's where he found himself. We don't know exactly how long he was there. Some, some uh, scholars and people believe that it was only a year, maybe a year and a half that he was there. Uh, a lot of people believe that when Domitian died, he went back uh, to Ephesus to pastor that church. We don't know. But however long he was there, it wasn't comfortable. It wasn't easy. It would have been hard. It would have been lonely. It would have been a lot of isolation. In fact, he would have been absolutely miserable. Think about how you would have felt. I mean, here you are. You're serving your Lord, your Savior, you're serving him with all of your life. You're giving your all to him. You're, you're not getting all this money for your, your service and ministry, and that's not why you're doing it. You're facing persecution. You're facing opposition. And yet you are faithful. And despite all your faithfulness and despite all your work and despite all your love for your Savior, what is the result of all that for you personally? You get shipped out of your home and out of civilization into this penal colony called Patmos, where as an elderly man, I mean, John was old at this point. He was the last living apostle. Last living apostle. Last living eyewitness of the Lord Jesus. He was up in years, near to the end of his life. And in that context, he sent to Patmos for slave labor for no purpose whatsoever. It's, it's just labor uh, as a result of, of a crime that he wasn't 
you know, deserving any punishment for. The crime was a, a faithful witness of the gospel. But Rome said that, you know, that crime is, is worthy of banishment, and that's where he found himself. So miserable, a miserable set of circumstances, miserable situation, miserable environment. But what John was going to quickly discover, what John was going to quickly experience, is what is true for you and for me, what can be our experience as well. And that's this. It's really good news. You ready for it? Jesus meets us in our misery. And He calls us to focus on Him instead of our circumstances. That's what Jesus did for John. It's what He called John to do. And my friends, it's what He will do for every single one of us. Whenever we find ourselves in a miserable situation, and let's just be honest, life is full of miserable situations, isn't it? Maybe you came in here today with one. Uh, Maybe something like that's going on around you. If not right now, wait, it will. Because that's just life. That's the reality of life in which we live. Cold, hard reality. Life is hard, but God is good. Life is hard, but God is good. And that's what John experienced personally from Jesus as he's in this situation, he's in this setting, he's in this environment, miserable experience, but that's where Jesus met him. That's how Jesus came to him and gave this incredible revelation. So the setting and the background is very, very important. And the reason that Jesus called John to focus on him instead of his circumstances, the reason he will do that for you and for me, the reason he calls all of us to that is because no matter how dark a situation might be, it's no match for the brightness of Christ's glory. John wrote about that in the opening Verses, the opening lines of of this revelation as he goes past the introduction, past the prologue. Now he's in the body of the content of what he's writing. Now he's getting into the the specifics and the nature of this revelation. Uh, John also wrote in chapter 1, verse 5 of his gospel, the gospel of John, he wrote that when the light of Christ entered the darkness of our sin-filled world, that the darkness could not smother it, and it could not overcome it. He said about Jesus in, in his prologue of his gospel, he said, in him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. And that light shone in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. And that was true when Jesus came into the world. It's true now. And it will remain true, church, until He completely does away with every trace of sin and evil and darkness, which He's going to do. Do you believe that? He's going to do it. It's a fact. It's a reality. And what a day that will be, right? What a day that will be. Well, John continues, and in verse 10, let's look at the text again together. Revelation 1, verse 10, 
he says, as he explains and establishes where he was and the situation surrounding his circumstance and reality as he knew it at this point, verse 10, he says this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, like we're, you know, we're gathering today, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. Don't you miss Don Johnson being here with us? And his trumpet, you know, uh, I, I, just, I think of Don and using his, his trumpet ministry for the Lord and, and, and using his gifts and his talents to bring all of us in uh, through music to the presence of the Lord. And, and so John is, when, when he says he's in the Spirit, that's important because this isn't, he's not daydreaming, okay? This isn't him asleep and having all this happen. He was actually supernaturally uh, in a way unique to, to what he's writing about here, taken by the Holy Spirit uh, in really what we would refer to as a, as a vision, a vision-type state. So he was taken supernaturally by the Spirit and, and in, in unison with the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and he hears a loud voice behind him like a, like a trumpet just blaring. And here's what this voice said, verse 11, saying... Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, seven specific churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We're going to be starting into those seven churches next week, and we'll be there for a while because there's a lot that is said to these churches and about these churches. And these seven churches, while specific, literal churches at this time, they were representative of all the churches that were known at that time, and they represent the church age through every age. They represent the church age as we know it and which we are part of. So there's a lot, a lot there. Um, we'll, we'll jump into that, Lord willing, Next week, but John uh, was instructed to write on a scroll everything he sees, everything he experiences in this revelation, and then to send all of it, leave nothing out, leave it all, leave it all there, and and take it, send it out to these specific churches. Verse twelve. Then I turned, like we would do, like we'd look around, like where's this coming from? Who is who is saying this to me? So he turned. To see whose voice it was that spoke to me, John says. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. That's an odd thing to see. When you hear a voice, you turn around, you expect to see a person giving that voice, right? You don't expect to see seven golden lampstands. Hmm, this is getting very weird, right? And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. And most of you know that that was a specific title of a specific person throughout his earthly ministry, his favorite title. Who, who is this talking about? You tell me. Jesus Christ, yeah. The Son of Man, the Messiah. That was a, that's a reference to his messianic role and office, and he, it was his favorite term for himself. It's also a fulfillment of what was prophesied in Daniel about the coming Son of Man. So one like the Son of Man, it was Jesus, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash 
wrapped around his chest. Now, I've got to stop here and provide a a couple uh, comments and observations about what's going on here, about what he, he sees Jesus dressed in and dressed like. Um, there's, there's two very specific connections here between Christ's perfect and permanent priestly ministry and the picture or the shadow of his priestly ministry that's found in the Old Testament and the Old Testament priests. So right here in, in verses 12 and 13, there's, there's just two powerful connections that I don't want to miss, and I would be doing you a disservice if we just breezed past. All right, so the first connection that I want to point out uh, is as it relates to verse 12 and these, these mysterious seven golden lampstands that John saw as he turned around. Um, one of the sacred duties of the Old Testament priest was to tend the golden lampstand in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And that golden lampstand, it represented God as the source of light and life for Israel, for, for all people, but especially for Israel. So the priest had to make sure that all seven oil lamps uh, on the arms of these, these, this lampstand, or more accurately, the menorah, you probably know that term, the menorah, uh, it was on this, this menorah, and there were lamps on there, oil lamps that had to keep burning. And so uh, the priest would have to tend those lamps and make sure they would, they would continually burn to represent the fact that God's light and His provision of life, and, and that He was the source of everything, that He never changes, that He never fades, that His light never goes out. It was all an important symbol and picture of all that. So the priest would tend that and make sure the lamps would keep burning, Think of that, that uh, very old song that some of you, I'm sure, know. Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, right? And you're singing it now, and that's okay. That's, that's how that was. It, was. it was a constant process, and it was one of his most sacred duties. So, in John's vision, Jesus, the great high priest, is also in the midst of now seven lampstands, caring for these lamps, just as the priest was a picture of before him, caring for these lamps, causing them to be effective, causing them and keeping them to burn brightly and to never go out. Second connection. In verse 13, uh, John describes Jesus as wearing this robe, and, and the idea is a, a long, flowing robe with this golden sash wrapped around his chest. Here's the second connection that I want to point out with that. The first few verses in Exodus 39 tells us that there were golden threads, individual threads, woven into the band that went around the high priest's chest. So individual bands woven into uh, this this, uh, band that went around him. But in Revelation here, we see that Christ's band doesn't just have some golden threads woven in. No, the whole thing is gold. The whole band, all of it, complete gold. Why? Why the difference? Because Christ's priesthood is a perfect, eternal priesthood. The the others that came before Him, just a shadow. 
It was a copy, a picture, looking ahead toward the ultimate or the great eternal high priest, the Lord Jesus. His priesthood is far greater than any other. And Hebrews 7 goes into a lot of detail about that. I would, I would invite you at some point, read Hebrews 7 and look at the, the priesthood of Jesus that's described in Hebrews 7 and then compare it to the Old Testament priests and their priesthood. It would be a great study for you. It would be very enriching. The contrast and the superiority of Christ's priesthood, it's astounding. It's astounding. But that's what's on display here. That's the picture we see, a superior priesthood. And that's what John sees and he recognizes. And certainly all the Jewish readers of this revelation would have immediately gotten that picture. They would have understood exactly what was going on there, and it would have spoken to them in powerful ways. So with that being said, let's jump back into the text because there's just so much more amazing detail that John provides of his Lord and Savior and our Lord and Savior. I hope, oh, I hope he's your Lord and Savior today. And if not, I hope that before you leave, he will be. Verse 14 of John's revelation says this, speaking of Jesus still, describing what he saw as he saw the Lord. Verse 14, the hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. And this This points to his purity, the purity of Jesus. This points to his holiness, his righteousness, his his complete otherness from us. And it also points to his his penetrating gaze of discernment and and his judgment on sin because he, of, of all people, is qualified, uniquely qualified, to be the judge of all men. Jesus said that in his ministry. He said, the Father will judge no one, but rather he has left judgment to the Son, that the Son will be the judge of all the living. And so this, this, his eyes of fiery flame, uh, it, it points to his, his penetrating gaze, his discernment, his ability to judge not just actions, but motives uniquely more than anyone else can. John continues in verse 15, and he says, His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and His voice like the sound of cascading waters. And that certainly speaks of His power and His might, His authority, His majesty. Think of crashing waterfalls coming down and, and just that, if you've ever had a chance to go uh, by a, a real waterfall and you're just, you're just in awe of the power of the water coming down and the volume of it and, and just the, the, the majesty of what you're seeing. And, and that's what the voice of Jesus sounded like to John. And think of all those times, all those, those moments and days and months and years that Jesus spoke to John and John heard from him and he spoke to him tenderly as a, as a close friend. Never in the Gospels did you see an account or a recording of Jesus' voice coming to John like the sound of cascading waters. But here, in this vision of Jesus, that's how how his voice sounds to John, a voice that John would have known very well. But now, in this setting, 
the voice sounds entirely different, not the same at all. It's, it's one of, of complete power and might, authority and majesty. Then in verse 16, he says this, He had seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. And I have to draw your attention. You don't have to go there with me, but I have to at least draw your attention uh, to the book of Hebrews, because in Hebrews 4, 12-13, there's an amazing statement that connects what John says here about this sharp double-edged sword coming from his mouth. Hebrews 4, 12-13, the author there says this, For the Word of God, and that's speaking of the written Word, for the Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, not just actions but motives. Then the author transitions and he he says this, no creature is hidden from him. So as he starts off, he says, the Word of God is living and effective and sharper, and, and he, he calls it it. So it, it's, a, it's a thing he's talking about. That lets us know he's at first speaking of the written Word of God. But then he says, no creature is hidden from him. Hmm. Friends, whenever you see that kind of transition, don't just go past it. Stop there and say, okay, what's going on here? Why the difference? Why the transition from it to him? So the him that is being referred to is the eternal living word now. And that should sound very familiar, like what John wrote about in, back in his gospel again, in the prologue, John 1.1. 1, 1. John the Apostle said of Jesus that Jesus was the Word, the eternal Word, the eternal revelation of all that God is. In the beginning was the Word, John said, and the Word was with God, speaking of the Father, and the Word was, was God. So what God the Father was, was true of, of the Word, which we know is None other than Jesus Christ, the eternal living Word. So the author here, he starts off talking about the written Word of God, that it's living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, that it can discern motive from action. Then he says, and no creature is hidden from Him, the eternal living Word. But all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. And that's what, surely, what John was, was seeing and what he was thinking about when he saw, back in verse 14, we just read it, of Jesus' eyes being like fiery flames. He was seeing this, this penetrating gaze of the One to whom we all must give an account. There is no one like Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. He stands alone. Second part of verse 16, John says this. So after, after he sees uh, that he has seven stars in his right hand and this sharp double-edged sword coming from his mouth, which certainly um, symbolizes the Word of God, he says this, And his face was shining like the sun at full strength. 
This was just like at the transfiguration, which John personally experienced. When John and Peter and James were taken up on the mountain with Jesus, and it says that his clothing was changed and became radiant, white as snow, and and it says that his face was changed, and it was shining like the sun at full strength. And when John and Peter and James saw it, they fell down on their faces before him. And at that transfiguration, after it happened, when they went down from the mountain, Jesus said, don't tell anybody what you saw. It's not time yet. And that's exactly how it was now for John. I mean, this would have been kind of like a deja vu experience for him, no doubt. Because he looks at Jesus and he he sees his face shining like the sun at full strength. And certainly he would have thought, hey, I've seen this before. I know what I need to do. Boom, he's down. He's flat on his face. Verse 17, the first part of that tells us, when I saw him, John writes, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And I want to remind you, this is John the beloved apostle. This is not just anybody. This is the one who at the Last Supper, John was reclining against Jesus' chest at at a place that was reserved for the closest friend. And he he was so comfortable with Jesus that he was just leaning back against Him as he ate. You only do that with someone you're extremely close to, right? You only do that with someone that you're comfortable with. I mean, you have somebody over at your, at your house for dinner, and you're sitting around, you're drinking coffee, you're having dessert, and all of a sudden, they start leaning back against you. You're like, okay, how you doing? Can I help you? You know, I mean, especially if that's like the first time they've been there. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Alarms are going off, Right? So, I mean, you have to be extremely comfortable to do that. You have to be someone that knows the person very well. That's how it was with John and Jesus. I mean, all the, uh, all the disciples, I mean, they were with Jesus 24-7 for three and a half years. They knew each other very well. They ate together. They talked together. They walked together. They slept beside one another. They goofed off together. There was an intimate, personal relationship, a deep connection and John stood out even from the rest of them as a, a very special, intimate relationship. But here and now, when John sees his friend, his, his Savior, but his friend, who he had not seen now for several years, you'd think, humanly, like you and I, you'd think John would would as he recognized who this is, he'd run up and like throw his arms around him and grab him and say, Jesus, I've missed you. So good to see you, man. Right? I mean, we wouldn't fault him for that because of, of what they already had. They had a deep personal relationship and a strong bond, a friendship. But no, that's not what happens. John looks after he hears this voice like cascading waters, and he sees him in the midst of the lampstands, and he he sees him holding these seven stars, and he sees his eyes, fiery, 
full of flame, this discerning, piercing, white-hot gaze of righteousness, and he sees this all, and instead of running up and grabbing him and hugging him and saying, great to see you, man. No, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Christian, when we first see Jesus in glory, when we first see Jesus in glory, we won't be giving Him high fives and hugs. We'll be falling on our faces before His feet. And we will be saying, not worthy, not worthy. And we'll be saying praise and glory and power and dominion are yours forever and ever and ever. Now, I personally believe there will be hugs. I believe that we will be able to embrace our Savior and feel His embrace around us. What that will be like. That will come. But at first... And maybe for the first thousand years, because remember, we'll be in eternity at that point. For that first bit of time, I I think we won't be able to lift our head to look at him. He'll have to do the lifting, which I believe he'll do, because we see that happening here in just a second. We're going to see that. But it's really important to understand that our first reaction, I absolutely believe, will be one of just of absolute humility and and honor and worship to our Savior because we'll see Him as He really is. And for the first time in our existence, we'll really understand who it is that gave His life for us. You see, Jesus is our closest friend. Absolutely, He is. He is our closest friend. But He is also the eternal Lord of glory. We need to remember that. Church, we need to remember who and what Jesus really is. We need to not water Him down. We need to not try to bring Him down on our level too much because He is the eternal Lord of glory. We need to keep Him exalted in His rightful place. So after after John falls at His feet like a dead man, the second part of verse 17 tells us this. He, He, Jesus, this awesome awesome Lord and Savior. He laid His right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And once again, that would have been more deja vu from the transfiguration because on the Mount of Transfiguration, as Peter and James and John are are laying there not knowing what to do, after the cloud leaves and the voice of the Father stops, Jesus comes and He does the same thing. He touches them and He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's, it's just me. And then Jesus says this, after he tells John, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. We talked about that last week, Alpha and Omega, the A to Z, in control of everything. At the beginning, all the way through, at the end, sovereignly orchestrating everything that happens. He says, I'm the first and the last. I've, I've got this, John. I've got, I'm, I'm, Everything's good. Verse 18, he says, not only is he the first and the last, but he continues, and the living one. 
the ever-living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. That means, Christian, you don't have to fear death. Because the one who is the door, the door of life, holds the keys to death. And for everyone who is in Christ, death is simply the doorway that Jesus opens for you to go through to be with Him. Death is the doorway through which He ushers you in to His presence where you get to hear the same thing He said to John. Don't be afraid. I'm here. And the timing of that is in His hands as well. In His perfect hands, His perfect timing. Because He holds the keys. Then, verse 19, after all this this incredible display, this vision of the glorified Christ, because that's what this reveals. We're talking about what Revelation reveals? Well, here it reveals the glorious Son. And so after He sees all of this, verse 19 Jesus says, therefore, write. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, don't tell anybody what you've seen. It's not time yet. Now, he tells John, it is time. I want you to write everything you're seeing, every detail. Write what you have seen. What is and what will take place after this. What you've seen is what you're seeing right now. What what you're seeing in, in me and about me. Write it. Reveal it. Show everybody what you're seeing in me and, and what I am. Let them see and know my reality. That's what you've seen. What is, that's the churches that he's writing about. Uh, he's going to address those specifically. He's going to include copies of letters that Jesus himself dictates to John. That's the what is part. And then what will take place after this? That's the prophecies that are to come. And that's what Jesus wants John to write down. Very specific parts of this revelation. Then, verse 20, Jesus graciously explains what were very mysterious images that he saw early on in this vision. Remember, he saw Jesus holding seven stars. What's that about? He saw him standing in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. Hmm. Well, Jesus explains that. Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. Isn't it great when someone explains something to you? Especially when it's this kind of stuff. Jesus did that. He said, here's what it is, John. Here's the the, the mystery. The seven stars are the angels, and that word here uh, literally means messengers, and it refers to the messengers or the pastor teachers of the specific churches that John is to write to. It's not, don't think celestial being angels, think pastors, messengers. So the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So you see that connection there? So the the seven stars that Jesus is holding in His hand, those represent the seven specific pastors of the seven specific churches which are pictured or represented by these lampstands that Jesus is in the midst of. And here's what that 
tells us and what that shows us as we wrap all this up together today. Last week, when um, we ended with uh, the statement by John uh, giving praise to Jesus, the one who, who said of himself, I am the beginning and the end. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am the Almighty God. I told you all last week that word Almighty, that literally means one who has his hands on everything. And I referred back to that old familiar song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. That was another part where you guys probably just kept singing that in your head, you know? Well, here we see Jesus in the midst of of these seven lampstands, which are the seven churches, and he's got the stars in his hands, which represent the seven pastors. Guess what that tells us? He's got the whole church in his hands. Isn't that good news? That the, the functioning and the life and the vitality and the effectiveness and the power and the beauty of the church doesn't rest on or depend on you or me. That's not why the church is effective. We talked about that a couple weeks ago as we ended our doctrine series. Why church works and what makes church worth it isn't you and me. It's the Lord and Savior, the head of our church. He's what makes it work. He's what makes it worth it. And then more, more personally, you and me as believers... What this shows us, all of this coming together, it shows us that Jesus gives us His light. Remember, He's the light of the world. But He also said, you are the lights of the world. So He he gives us His light, and He keeps it burning. He tends those lamps. He makes sure they're, they're continuing to burn brightly, just like the priest before Him did. So He gives us His light, He keeps it burning. Our job, Christian, our job is to keep shining that light out to a very dark world and to keep reflecting that light back to Him so that any light that is seen by us isn't kept by us, but rather it's just put right back where it belongs to the source of light so that others will see Him, not us. That's what's up to us. What a Savior we have. What a Savior. There's no one like Him. Oh, I hope you know Him today. And if not, I hope you will before the day is done. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank You for Your Word. I want to thank You for what it shows us. I thank You for preserving Your Word. I thank You for preserving this revelation the revelation you gave your son and that he in turn then gave to his servant John and that John was faithful to record and write under the guidance of your Holy Spirit so that we living today in 2021 can look back and read and dig into and process and uncover all that your son revealed to John and and that he then revealed to seven specific churches and and then it just kept going forward and going forth and and now we have it today and we can be blessed and encouraged and challenged and convicted and impacted by reading it thank you most of all for the awesome vision of the glorious son thank you for showing us and reminding us who and what Jesus really is 
Thank you that He is our closest friend. Thank you that He is our divine older brother. But He is also the eternal Lord of glory. Help us to remember that. Help us to not wait until glory when we see Him and we fall flat on our faces in honor and worship. Help us to do that every single day right now and to glorify Him with every breath. I pray this all with praise to and in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.